0: My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to Do or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hi. My name is Madley and I'm a fourth-year medical student and you are listening to Do or Do Not. On today's episode, my colleague Tiffany Carlson and I interviewed Dr. Joe Bush, a chief resident at Amida St. Francis's OB-GYN Residency Program. Dr. Bush comes from a long line of physicians and prior to residency, he served in the US Navy for 4 years as a general medical officer. After graduating residency, he plans to join his father and brother in their private practice OB-GYN clinic. Dr. Bush is eager to share stories from his military experience as well as his residency training that highlight just how critical of a role osteopathic training plays in patient care. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Bush, for joining us today. My first question for you is: How did you become interested in medicine and decided that you wanted to become a doctor?
0: That's a great question. So I've been influenced by my father, who is a doctor. He's a DO. Fortunately, went to CCUM. So I pretty much knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was four years old, and then didn't quite know all the things that I needed to. But then, when I was in like high school, I really started being focused on things to get ready for, like because it really starts in high school. Then you got to get into like college, and then get all your stuff to go there to do all those things. So yeah, it's it's a long journey. It's good.
2: You went to the same school as your dad. Where? there are choices like you definitely wanted to do osteopathic medicine or what was the deciding factor of becoming an osteopathic physician?
0: So that's a great question. My brother and my sister are both MDs. My father, when my sister, who's eight years older than me, was going through medical school or like getting interested in medical school, it was like the early 2000s. And he was still concerned about some of the prejudice about being a DO. So she went to Tulane, down in new orleans and just became an md and then my brother kind of followed her footsteps but then when it came to me ccm tool and ccm were like my top two choices i liked the philosophy that do's had um, i like that ability because when i was younger my father used to help like adjust me and i thought that was just such a interesting other aspect of it and then just reading up into the philosophy of uh, being open to different practices and things like that i thought that was a great way to help treat patients
1: how was your experience at ccom did you know what specialty you wanted to do right from the get-go or is that something that you discovered going along
0: also a good question because I absolutely did not want to do ob <laughs> That was the thing I ruled out initially. Everyone's like, you're going to do OB-GYN. I'm like, I don't want to do ob I'm going to do something else. So I was always open to everything. I enjoyed kind of all the different things. The reason I really liked CCOM was because they had access to so many different hospitals. I could see lots of different patients, populations. I could see lots of different sort of the teaching styles and things like that. And then... I knew I wanted something surgical, so I tried to focus a lot more on surgical stuff. And then it wasn't until I did my OB rotation at Christ that I was like, oh, no, I like this too much. I think I'm going to go into OB.
2: (laughs) You mentioned that, you know, you went there for the hospitals, but did you do anything besides just studying and doing clinicals, like extracurricular activities or research?
0: So for me, I was in the HBSP program, which is the health Professions scholarship program. It's the military sort of like scholarship program. So there was some things that I needed to do for them. But mostly what I was doing was just trying to figure out like where to go. One of the things that I did was I worked with a muscular dystrophy association. They had these summer camps. So like you had a child who was had muscular dystrophy, so they just needed help. And basically, you were just like their aide and their friend for a week. And you got to do all these fun activities. So it was a great experience. That was kind of a big thing that I did when I was in medical school.
2: Were you involved in any other extracurricular activities? I noticed some kind of neat things that you worked towards on your CV. So maybe you could talk about those.
0: One of the big things that I was surprised when I was applying to medical school that helped me so much was I was a Boy Scout for many years. I was going camping. We used to go on this trip in the summer where we'd go up to Canada. We'd go fishing. It was so remote. They would literally just like flew in this like seaplane. You landed on this lake in the middle of nowhere, like literally nowhere. And then they're like, All right, good luck. And then you had to like catch fish and do stuff. I've always loved camping and being outdoors. And then I was fortunate enough to become um, an Eagle Scout. That was surprising because that was some of the things that uh, when I was doing my interviews from medical school, it's like the first thing that people brought up was like, so I see you're an Eagle Scout. I am an Eagle Scout. I didn't realize it would be so, so helpful. <laughs> oh,
1: that's awesome. So going back to your military experience, can you tell us a little bit about your time serving and how did that play into your medical career? Did you have to serve time before residency? Did you have to do a civilian versus like a military residency things like that
0: so i didn't know about the HPSP program until i went to a medical conference with my father and they had there was like a booth of, i think it was an army recruiter and he's like hey if you're interested in medical school there's this program that you could do it's embarrassing now because now i know better but when i was trying to do the HPSP program i went to a recruiter so like i just went to the local recruiter at like one of the strip malls and like walked in fun fact those are not for officers those are for the enlisted I walked in and I you know I'm in medical school and I want to join the military I want to join this program and the guy looked at me he's like you're in the wrong place I was like oh so then he made a phone call and he's like yeah he's standing right in front of me I don't know what he's doing here and then gave me information on how to go to the right place, which was based up in um, Chicago, just north of the city. It's a naval base. So I got to go up there and work with some recruiters. Then finally got all the stuff done. It's a long process. It takes about six months to do. There's a lot of paperwork and stuff involved, especially um, you have to get certain clearance levels. But doing it, I thought, was great. They paid for all of my medical school, which was amazing. And really just like, allowed me to focus more on kind of figure out what I wanted to do and my medical career. So it was a a great option. Afterwards, it's sort of a, a strange system that they have because medical residency programs match in December. They actually just matched a few days ago. So you apply to them and you also apply to like civilian because sometimes they'll give you like what's called a civilian deferment. You can request a civilian deferment and they'll sometimes give that to you. I got a civilian deferment to one of the hospitals here in the city. I got to do my sort of transition year. So they prefer you to do a transition year uh, because you're more helpful to them because you've had sort of access to lots of different things more than like a specialized one. So almost everyone in the Navy does these um, transition ones because they can use them what's called a GMO or a general medical officer. And they can put you places because you're more likely to deploy with the Navy, which was something that I wanted.
2: Well, it was an unfortunate Army loss this weekend uh, to Navy. No, it was a great Navy win. <laughs> I know that you worked at Olympia Fields, which is heavy uh, kind of osteopathic history to it, and then went on to your GMO. Can you just talk about that transition year and then kind of talk about what a GMO does?
0: Yeah, absolutely. A fun fact about Olympia Fields, so CCOM used to have a hospital out in the city, in Hyde Park, and then they bought Olympia Fields or made Olympia Fields. My father then moved down there, which is how I ended up kind of south of the city, because he used to work there. And then he uh, left there. So he had some relationship to Olympia Fields. It was kind of a unique sort of experience being back there for him. That one was great. I did a lot of ICU uh, rotations and ER rotations because I knew that that would be helpful for me. Talk to my program director, and that's kind of how we set it up. And then transition to TMO or general medical officer. It's a strange experience because you are the sole medical provider for a battalion of Marines. But maybe you can either go blue side or green side. Blue side is you're on a ship. Green side is you go with the Marines. And I knew I wanted to go with the Marines. So I, I requested to go with the Marines. I had one year of residency under my belt and I was making all of these choices. I had my DEA number, like I had a, a PA who was working under my license. I had 65 foremen who were working under my license. So it's a lot of teaching. You got to make sure that like people are doing their stuff too. It's, it's a strange experience. It's a lot of fun. And then I had the opportunity to deploy twice, which was great. And just to clarify.
1: Did you know where you were going to residency during that like military experience or did you have to reapply after that initial year?
0: Yeah. After that initial year, you actually do reapply because it's not always guaranteed. Most people get a GMO or a general medical officer when they are in the Navy because the way that they do Navy, at least residencies, is there's a point system. So you get more points for people who have done active duty services. So if you're trying to get into a, a more difficult specialty, such as like uh, orthopedics or general surgery or uh, OB-GYN, then they're going, if you have like two people who have the same sort of prerequisites and everything else is the match, the person who deployed has more points. They're going to get that position over the other person. So almost everybody does a GMO tour, at least uh, in the Navy. It's not so much in the Army and the Air Force. Uh, just because they don't necessarily require that. They're different sort of um, military branches. But the Navy as an expeditionary force has that need, so it's a great option.
2: Did you find that you had an advantage in the Navy because of your osteopathic training?
0: Oh, man, did I ever. I was surprised at how many DOs were in the Navy, for one. But then I was just a, a battalion surgeon, a battalion doctor, and I had, like, somehow people knew that I could do manipulations and I liked doing manipulations. I remember this one time a general walked in who, he was a two-star general. And he just, like, walked into my battalion unannounced, which is very strange because, like, you know, uh, when, a, when a general or a commanding officer walks in, like, everybody has to stand up and uh, salute that person. So he just, like, you know, came in. And uh, he's like, I heard you can do manipulations. He's like, yes, I can. He's like, great. I need you to help fix me. I got blown up several years ago in Afghanistan and I need you to fix it. And he's like, I'll do what I can. <laughs> and then being deployed, you know, you're limited when you're deployed because you've got to sort of balance pain control and stuff with your Marines. Your, your guys ability to still function and do the things that they need to is you can't just like give narcotics to people because then they can't be out on post so you know and they're wearing flat jackets which are heavy they're about 40 pounds with all their stuff on them. so they have a lot of back pain and stuff like that so having the ability to do manipulations and get people back out without having to get them on narcotics was spect- I had like I had an OMM clinic when I was out deployed. <laughs> it was so silly. Like people would just be like, hey, doc, can I come down now? Can I, can I do this? Can I do that? I'm like, sure, I'll get you down there. Um, the other thing that was great was the, the military had something called um, battlefield acupuncture that was actually developed by an Air Force captain. And I think being a DO, I was open to sort of that sort of like alternative treatment modality. Um, so I took a class in it. And got uh, certified in it. And what you do is there are certain points on the ear that you can use. Um, You put these special little ends in, and you can help control pain. So that was something that I was able to do. I had one of my good friends, he's a major now, but he had a lot of PTSD, headaches, and things like that. And he had uh, bilateral torn labias in his hip. So, you know, he needed surgery and didn't hated narcotic pain medications. Like, I can't do anything. I'm just like a zombie drooling in the wall. So I was like, well, I can offer you this. And he told me that that controlled his pain, which was great. He didn't need any narcotics when I did it. And then it actually helped him sleep better. He had less nightmares and PTSD just from like not having so much pain and things like that. So we worked really closely together doing a lot of manipulations, doing a lot of stuff until eventually he was able to get the surgery that he needed. So it's just you know you got you got to be open to kind of do a lot of stuff. It's great. Um, I have another funny story if you want to hear it.
1: Absolutely, please. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so we were doing a training out at an army base mm-hmm. in Virginia, and army bases are just horrible. I'm just kidding, um, <laughs> but this one is specifically for training so we were out in this in the middle of nowhere virginia and a marine comes to me in the middle of the night and you're basically as the doctor you're just always on call because you're the only doctor and the marine comes and he's like i think something went into my ear and i go okay like you know let me just take a look i have my portable otoscope and i'm taking a look and i see something and it's a tick that's attached itself to his eardrum so i was like oh no okay this is not great Fortunately, I had done some stuff at County. So I had seen bugs and stuff in people's ear before. And we used viscous lidocaine. You sort of numb the thing and you can pull it out. But with a tick, unfortunately, because it sort of burrowed its way in, it didn't work and just kind of made him nauseous because I put cold stuff in his ear. So I'm trying to like get this thing off and I can't. So then the next day, like a few hours later, I I sent him to the emergency room. And the emergency room's like, we can't do anything for him either. They sent him back to me. I was like, What I was hoping was that you would, like, refer him to, like, an ENT, you know, someone who could do something for me, not just send it back to me when I can't do anything. So they sent him back to me. I Googled um, an ENT in the area. I called him up, and I said, hi, you know, Dr. Bush. I'm out with my Marines. Um, I have this guy, and he's got a phone attached to his eardrum. He's got TRICARE, which is a great insurance uh, program. So I was like, you know, you will get paid but I, I really could use your help. And he's like, sure, bring them over at whatever time it was. And like, does it. And this ENT's got like all these like special tools, it's got dilators and like things. So he can actually see versus my little, just like not being able to see anything. And it took him two hours to get this thing off his ear, but we got it. So that was good.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. I'd be so, so scared it's a lot if of, you I know, learned that. i <laughs> taken um, my ear.
0: Yeah, you got to be very adaptable. I started on Doxy. Yeah. I was like, I'm just going to start you on Doxy.
1: Out of curiosity, do you plan to continue practicing that form of acupuncture, like um, amongst your OB-GYN patients? I have offered
0: it. Um, so I have actually done it on a few of the nurses, and just because like they've had some pain. And I had uh, one of our attendings, she's had a lot of back issues and I've done it for her. And she's also really liked it. And I have my own TENS unit. So like, I'm all set with all different things.
1: <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about your residency experience then after, you know, finishing up your responsibilities as a GMO? Yeah. So I applied to
0: this residency while I was actively deployed. So I was in the middle of the desert and I was applying to, um, trying to get signals so that I could get internet connections so that I could do my applications. Um, I didn't have any like, formal pictures of me. So they took a picture of me sort of in my uniform. So that was the thing that I used, which was hit or miss. You know, you can scare people off with military uniform. I then, you know, I went on my interviews when I got back and I was like, I literally got back from deployment in October and then interviews sort of started like perfectly like right after that. So I was like, Hey, I gotta be gone. See you later. I gotta go do interviews. Um, I did my interviews. And then um, I knew my wife and I are both from Chicago um, and we knew we wanted to be back in Chicago. So that was kind of places that we were trying to focus on. Um, And then unfortunately I found the residency that I am currently at, which used to be a DO only um, residency where I was accepted. And then we merged my intern year with an MD program because ACG me sort of took over everything. So that was kind of a strange and interesting time. But it's worked out really well. I've been very happy.
2: Did you feel like it was more challenging coming back, transitioning from military to civilian, and then like jumping back into being like a first-year uh, resident?
0: You know, it's funny. Uh, the hardest question that I got on my interviews was because, you know, I've basically been out longer than... The fourth years who were interviewing me, I, you know, I've graduated before them and I've had more experience and they asked me like, what is that going to be like? And I was like, well, we all have very different experiences. Mine is very different from yours. And then they asked me, do you think you'll have trouble taking orders from people? And I said, it's <laughs> literally my job it's just to take orders from people. <laughs> it was definitely difficult because like I hadn't done a lot of ob when I was in the military so there's a lot of things that I sort of had to like have a crash course in just like get myself back up to speed and things like that so that was probably the hardest part but other than that it was just a good sort of like experience to be like oh I've I've seen more things I can handle whatever this thing is
1: so what are your plans after residency
0: it's funny that you asked that um, I asked my wife because um, when I was the second year couple of our gynonks was like you really should do gynonk which is a three-year fellowship after went home that night and i asked my wife and i said you know should i do this she's like absolutely and i and she didn't know how long it was going like, it's another three years and she goes absolutely not <laughs> i've struggled with that question because there's a lot of great specialties in ob-gyne um you do Gein-Anch, you do mfm the hard part is like then you give up sort of some of the things uh, other things. So for me, I'm going to actually be a generalist because I, I enjoy doing deliveries and I enjoy surgeries and stuff like that. So I'm going to do a generalist um, and then I'm going to stay in the Chicagoland area.
2: We're just going to like kind of dial it back down to kind of some decision points early on in your career. Do you think coming from a family of physicians gave you kind of an edge or made it easier in that decision process? And then what was that you mentioned in clinicals, that kind of aha moment, but can you give some advice for students that are in clinicals and like what to look for in choosing their specialty?
0: Yeah, those are uh, really important questions. So for me, I was never like forced, you would think, because my father was a physician, I was never forced to go into medicine. It was my choice to go into medicine. I think having the examples of my brother and sister going through, especially then becoming ob themselves, I had a better understanding of the commitment that is required to be a physician and then the, the time that it takes to be an ob You know, it's a lot of long hours, you know, you're transitioning from nights and days often. So you have to be mentally focused on that. And that has to be something that you have to be aware of. When I was a third year making decisions, I was open to pretty much doing anything. But I knew I wanted something surgical because I liked the OR. So you really have to make that decision as a third year, like, Do I like the OR? or Do I hate the OR? From there, then everything sort of splits. The answer is I like the OR. Then you have to find something surgical. So then I did a lot more surgical things. Um, I did a lot. I thought I wanted to do urology. I really enjoyed the surgeries. But then you have to enjoy the everyday stuff. So every specialty has its own great case. Like this is an amazing case. This is like everyone's talking about it for weeks later. Everyone has that. But you really got to enjoy the... Um, sort of like everyday things that like most people are going to do. So I found that I really enjoyed doing deliveries and C sections, especially were my favorite. But then when I was doing like a hysteroscopy, I wasn't bored. I I thought that was great, and I really enjoyed those. I knew I didn't want to do general surgery because I didn't necessarily enjoy doing um, cholecystectomies. I just didn't find them that fascinating, which is surprising because I thought I would want to do something surgical, but then. That was just not the the surgery for me. So that's kind of helped me make that decision.
1: So as a male in a predominantly female specialty with predominantly female patients, uh, have you ever met uh, challenges during your training or any form of like prejudice uh, amongst patients who prefer female physicians?
0: When my brother was going through OBGYN, he was the only male in his residency until his fourth year when they the new intern was another male. So, uh, you know, obviously there's some challenges. My residency is a bit unique. We have pretty much like 50-50 male to female ratio, which is surprising. Things that I've had, a lot of patients don't necessarily want male physicians in the room. So you have to be respectful for that. And then um, you have to tell them like, if something happens now that I'm more like a senior, I was like, if something happens, I'm going to be in the room You sort of have to be kind of aware of that because I'm going to help you and care for your baby and stuff like that. In surgery, most women don't necessarily care that much when you're doing like a gynon surgery or you know a a gyn surgery. They don't necessarily care that much about that. It's mostly when you're doing OB. Because it's a a special time in a woman's life. So unique. It's just a great time. So you have to be open to sort of their choices and just be willing to help them out as much as they can. When I was the only male resident on, because like sometimes you're the only one on at night, I'd be like, that's okay. I'll have the nurses do all of our checks for you. But if something happens, I'm going to have to come in and do stuff. And you just have to have that conversation with people.
2: What advice do you have for other cis men who are interested in exploring this specialty and kind of navigating that special time in a woman's life?
0: You know, I think men tend to have a sort of a unique perspective on it because we don't get the opportunity to do that. So, what I've seen is that we tend to be more in awe of the whole experience. You know, it's just like, it's amazing that you can do all these things. We tend to be a little bit more grateful. So, in people who want to go into the specialty just know that you have to be very understanding. You have to listen very well because women patients they'll tell you kind of what's going on and what they need, which is different than taking care of male patients who tend to be like, "I don't know, something happens. It hurts when I do this thing." You're like, "Yeah, gotta give me more." And then women will tell you everything, which is awesome. But then you have to sort of filter it down to those things. So really, just being open and, communic- and good communication skills is really important. So, like, when I'm doing, like, a pelvic exam or, you know, some sort of exam in the office, I, I try and walk them through the sort of, like, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. You might feel this and just, like, be aware of those things. Don't be offended if they're, like, you you want to, like, do an annual exam, which includes, like, a breast exam, and they're, like, no thanks, I don't want that. And, you're like, that's totally fine. You can work around this if you need to. Don't be too sure of yourself, I guess.
1: Switching gears a little bit, I'm curious, what does your wife do and has she always been supportive of your career? I know you mentioned she had some input on your fellowship decisions, but uh, yeah. <laughs> beyond
0: that. <laughs> so, fortunately for me, my wife is spectacular. She is a teacher, um, she's an elementary grade teacher. And she, you know, we started um, dating when we were in college when I was going through like, pre medical, and she was very excited about all that stuff. She's Kind of applied to places so she can be around me, which has been helpful. And then she wasn't super excited when I told her that we were going to move to North Carolina for military, only because like at that time she'd only been on a plane one time in her lifetime, you know. So like it was very different. She was very supportive. She was understanding, and she went with me. And then when we came back, she was open to the idea of where we wanted. Obviously, she wanted to be back in Chicago, but wherever we would get a residency would be, um, would be great. Fortunately, I was back in Chicago, so we were back home. And then she has been just spectacular. We had our firstborn was born while I was in the military. Um, I was actually deployed. um, So I missed her birth. So she took care of her while I was deployed for that whole time. And then we came, when I came back, we moved back here. Um, She was pregnant and delivered our son um, at the end of my first year. Your second year in, in ob is, at least in our program, tends to be one of the more difficult ones um, because the time commitment, um, you have the skills to do a lot of things, but you don't have the seniority, so you, you get to do a lot of call, which is tough. So I was gone for a long time, and she made it work, and then she, you know she just was absolutely amazing. I couldn't have done it without her.
2: She may be your superpowers. Podcast for sure. Called- <laughs> our podcast is called do or do not so it's based off of the uh, do or do not there is no try from Yoda and so that is really based off of the hero's journey which we tried to talk about the physician's journey how you became a physician and that kind of grand a uh, call to adventure so what do you think besides your wife is your superpower that's made you so successful in your career
0: <laughs> so being a physician having the ability now that i've had the experiences to kind of care for lots of different people in different areas um, you have to give up yourself one of the things you have to be is humble i always tell students to care for people well you have to give up some of yourself to kind of help them and i think that's part of the do sort of like mentality people are they'll sometimes meet you in the er and it's like their worst day so you have to be able to like Give up some of your positive energies, sort of make them feel better. I think my superpower, if I had to pick one, um, would be adaptability. You know, when you're in the military, you don't always have all the fancy gear. And then when you're um, in the OR, something's going to fall or something's going to happen. You might not have that specific device which you're like always use. So you have to be open to getting around those things because patients need you. So you have to kind of be adaptable. And I think that's really the most important thing that I would tell people is just be adaptable. Um, there was a, a funny story when I was deployed, uh, we had a patient, uh, one of my Marines and he had, what turned out to be testicular torsion, but I was on ship and all I had was an X-ray, a portable X-ray. I didn't have an ultrasound. I didn't have a Doppler. I, really only had either norco morphine or ketamine um to like for pain control i don't have anything to like support his breathing other than like a bag valve mass because i was on one of our smaller ships they just didn't have that equipment and i can't do surgery uh at this place because i don't have an or so um, i have to call and it was in the middle of the night, and my, my corpsmen comes up and goes doc we got a guy and he's, he's got testicular pain and I'm thinking the Marines, they probably did something silly. You know, he probably jumped off something. Okay, fine. So I go down there. And he's just riding on the bed, just rolling back and forth. And I'm immediately, I know that this is not a great situation and I'm trying to think of all the things that I need to do, you know, so I, I do my exam very clearly testicular torsion um, just by a physical exam alone, which I think was beneficial that I was a DO because we tend to be very good with our physical exams You know, I I made a call, Um, the captain's like, we're a day away from the port we just left. We're a day away from our other ship, which can do surgery. And we don't have any sort of aircraft or anything to get him off. Um, Because one of the thoughts was like, maybe we can get him off. I was in the middle of the Red Sea, like maybe we can get him off and get him to Ethiopia. But that's going to take a day to get um, an aircraft to us to then get him off. And I just don't have that time. So he's like, do you want to turn around or keep going? So I have to make this decision with you know one year of interview, <laughs> and I said the best choice is to go to where our surgery is. We had another ship that had surgical capabilities, so we go down to there. And in the meantime, I'm talking to one of our other doctors, and I I told him my plan. And I'm going to do sort of like conscious sedation. Can't really put him to sleep to do this because I don't have anything to support his airway. Um, so do conscious sedation on an 18 year old and. I was able to do to manually detorse this testicle, and he did great. Like immediately, pain relief, spectacular. We got him off the ship. Everything went well. You know, you just have to be very adaptable. And then uh, I was in another um, emergency in my residency, and they're like, you know, we're worried that she's bleeding internally. Things are all closed. She's not doing well. She's got what's called a, an amniotic fluid embolism. Um, the problem with that is they tend to go into DIC or, you know, just bleed heavily. So they're like, is there blood in the abdomen? You can't tell because she's bleeding from all her ports. And I was fortunate enough that I had uh, training and I said, I could do a fast scan. Um, so I did a fast scan and blew all the nurses minds that I was able to do this. And I was like, it's really not that difficult, but yes, absolutely. That was me. <laughs> They still talk about, like, I can't believe you did that. Like, you know, an ER intern learns this like day three. So I was (laughs) able to do it, which is good.
1: Those are amazing stories. Yeah, definitely have to be adaptable. So again, a little bit switching gears a little bit, but uh, how do you obtain a work-life balance? What are some of the things that you like to do outside of the hospital? How do you manage fun and work?
0: Yeah. Well, work is fun, right? So I enjoy work being at work. Yeah. Work life balance, you know, I have my my kiddos, which is great. So my wife has been great. So she sort of has things all on a schedule, like knows my schedule. Like we always talk about it, like, hey, I'm working this, I'll be home, whenever. So we try and schedule things for like days when I'm off. You know, it's hard sometimes when you do like a 24-hour shift because like you need to sleep for a period of time before you kind of go home. And she's been... Always accepting of me being at the hospital, sleep for a couple hours, then come home. So then we try to maximize our time when we're at home of just like being with the kids, um, you know, trying to do fun things. So like last night, I, we took them to the Brookfield Zoo for zoo lights, uh, Christmas lights. And so we just try to maximize those different things. Outside of work, we like to travel. So we went down to New Orleans. We got some time off We went down to New Orleans with the kids. Uh, we also have um, a lake house up in Michigan. So we try to go up there, which is fun. Go up there for the 4th of July every year. But I didn't for several years when I was in North Carolina. And then it's hard when you're the first two years because you just don't get that time off always. So then I was a third year and we were driving up there because I had the weekend off. It was like my first like full weekend off, which is called like a golden weekend. And like, we were driving up there and she's like, are you sure you're off? I'm like, I think so. And, like, we seriously checked the, the schedule like three times on our drive up there. Just to make sure that I wasn't missing anything.
2: So you talked about OMM like uh, on the ships and like getting to treat generals and then treating your nurses with acupressure. What kind of role do you feel that OMM has in OB-GYN?
0: Oh my God, so much. When my wife is pregnant, you know, I would wake up very early in the morning to go to work and, you know, she would sort of be half asleep and then... (laughs) I would adjust her right there, like you know, do a lot of like lumbar on side. Um, a lot of women who are pregnant, um, because of just having this weight sort of in front of them, they get a lot of lumbar pain and sacral pain and neck pain because of everything sort of pulling on them. And a lot of women who are pregnant don't necessarily want those medications. Who don't want medications because they're either you know nervous about the effects that it'll have, how they'll do you know, so having this ability to do lumbar treatments, doing uh, cervical manipulations and just soft tissue stuff, it is key. I think it's super important. The nurses at St. Alexia in one of the hospitals we go to, when I was there, I would do all these manipulations for them. I just went back, you know, this week and they were all like, oh, thank God, Joe's here. I got this thing. I need you to fix it. Um, One of the nurses She had a rib dysfunction, so I put a rib back in place. It's just, (laughs) they're like, it's very exciting that you have this ability. It's like an extra skill.
1: Definitely. As somebody who's received treatment from Dr. Joe Bush, I, yeah,
0: you do a great job,
1: (laughs) especially after a long day on (laughs) LD. So we're getting down to our final question and we like to ask all of our interviewees this, but what is the best piece of advice that you've gotten throughout your education that you always think of and would like to pass on to other students, future residents, uh, current residents, uh, anybody? Sure,
0: I have a couple. One that always, especially when you're thinking about what specialty you want to go into is it's kind of like getting married. And what I mean by that is, you know, you sort of understand kind of all the things that could happen. You obviously Mm -hmm. don't know what the future holds, but at best it's an educated guess and you sort of go for the thing that you've fallen in love with and just kind of make it work from there. So when you're picking your specialty, you might not always have the exact answer. No one's going to tell you, but you'll just have this feeling that you know that it's correct. The other thing is when you are like working with patients, you need to always kind of remind yourself that they have different experiences too. And being humble is really important. Sometimes, you know, it's hard for physicians to kind of sit down and just like listen to people. But sometimes that's what patients really need is they need you to just take a second and hear them. And you can help them a lot with that. So just being open to that stuff.
2: Thank you so much. Is there one more story you want to share with us before we kind of end this?
0: <laughs> I mean, I got lots of st- <laughs> I got lots of stories. <laughs> Do you want a military one or a residency one?
2: Oh, you know, whatever the muse is telling you.
0: <laughs> okay, sounds good. Let's see. I remember when I was in the military, I had this uh, Marine who had this like knee pain and couldn't figure it out x-rays were negative. MRI was negative. He had gone to physical therapy. And like he's like, every time I run or walk, I have this shooting pain down my leg. I can't figure it out. No one seems to know what's going on. And he came to me. He'd been, he had been uh, kind of at one of the other battalions, but they had heard that I could do some things. And I was like, I mean, I guess I can take a look. When I heard the story, I'm like, I don't know what what I'm going to do besides an MRI or, you know, I've already seen ortho, already seen physical therapy. I don't know necessarily what I'm going to do, but I just was talking to him. And then um, I flashed back to OMM class, I think it was second year. And we were talking about fibular head dysfunctions. And I said, I bet that your common fibular nerve is being impinged. So let me see if I can... Manipulate that, um, and I hadn't done that. You know, I hadn't done that one probably since like the year of OMM So I got my books out, I had all my things, and I, you know, I, I was like, I, I, I can do this. I, I've done it before. I can do this. You know, so I had him come back. I did the head relocation thing. so I pushed it back in place, and his pain stopped. <laughs> amazing (laughs) not like a miracle worker it just was very fortunate
1: (laughs) that is fantastic well thank you so much again dr bush for taking the time to speak with us your stories are truly something else they're wonderful Uh i had such a good time listening to them and i'm sure our (laughs) listeners will too
2: this concludes our episode of do or do not Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there is someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at do or do not podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up and we are excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.